Welcome in and welcome aboard another episode of A Show to Be Named Later. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you found us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com, wherever it is that you get your podcasts, or if you follow me on Twitter at SethGoldberg17, or like my Facebook page, Seth Goldberg Sports. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for making us a part of your day. Uh, fun interview coming up. We had Thornton McEnray on the show, and uh, you may not know the name. He's not a sports reporter. He is a business reporter for the New York Post, and uh, he covers, he is covering right now, uh, among other things, the potential bid for Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez to buy the Mets. So I reached out to Thornton. He came on the show and kind of went deep dive into how uh, how this is possible and if it's really realistic. So some interesting stuff with Thornton. And then after that, we'll do a little draft recap. Round one last night. Um, early grades, I guess. Early things that stand out. We'll put it that way. I don't like grades this time. Who knows? It's impossible to know who won the draft and who lost the draft's first round the morning after. But instead, we will do uh, early thoughts. What stood out to me last night? But we'll do that after we hear from Thornton McEnry of the New York Post. That's coming up now here on a show to be named later. And now, as promised here on a show to be named later, we are joined by Thornton McEnry from the New York Post. He covers business for them. And uh, Thornton, before we dive in on, on A-Rod and J-Lo and uh, what's going on with the Mets, uh, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, how are you today? I'm good, man. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Good to hear. Good to hear. And, you know, I, I love the story that you wrote. I, th- I think it's really interesting because people look at, at sports valuations and sports franchise values as, as kind of constantly rising. But uh, right now they're taking a hit along with the rest of the economy, or so it seems. Yeah, I mean, everything everything has changed. Uh, it's kind of a radical rethinking of the global economy in real time. Um, it's it's kind of jarring. I mean, I mean, I cover finance. I'm not actually a sports reporter. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've seen everything from, you know, oil prices to hedge funds to, I mean, everything has been sort of reimagined and rethought. And uh, baseball teams are, are not immune to that but in any sense. In fact, it seems, based on people we've talked to in the past few weeks, baseball teams, especially the Mets, uh, are more exposed to this new reality than, than anybody else. You know, you, you say especially the Mets, and I'm curious, is that because it was obvious they were on the market, like it, because they had a deal in place recently? That's part of it. I mean, the Mets have a pretty substantial debt load and have for years. Um, I mean, you know, the Wilpons are not the wealthiest owners in baseball. Uh, they never really have been. Um, they've ad- almost admirably been chugging along with what, they, what they've been able to put together. But the Madoff... Um, Nightmare uh, put a real crimp, uh, crimp in their 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 uh, their line there, and you know they've just they've they've borrowed from baseball. They've got a lot of debt. City Field's debt situation was never ideal, and uh, now in this reality is even less so. Um, but yeah, I mean the the Mets the Mets lose the Mets lose money on the baseball side in a good year. Uh, SNY props up the whole operation, but uh, in a year where I mean, we're, right now we've been doing number of stories and we're doing one again now that you know if they if the Mets play half a season this year, it's kind of the worst case scenario because what'll happen then is they'll still probably owe what they owe for any regular season on the stadium and the parking lot, 
but they won't be collecting any revenue uh, for most of the season. And then once the players come back and start playing, there'll probably have to be a prorated agreement where they'll have to find a way to like meet payroll to a certain point for players and staff. But what they will be dealing with is not only half a gate for a season, but what we would assume would be a substantially reduced gate based on the fact that people aren't going to rush out to the ballpark to sit cheek to jowl after a pandemic. It's just not in the feasibility range, even if Major League Baseball has people in the stands. So for the Mets at this point, it's almost better if the season is canceled and there's a way for Major League Baseball to figure out a way to make everybody whole because some of these teams are more capable of getting through this than others. And the Mets, unfortunately, are on the lower lowest end of that unprepared uh, side of it. And the fact that they had a deal fall through right before this whole thing went down makes it just that much worse. That's so interesting that, that you mentioned business-wise that they might be better off if, if the season were to get canceled. Then it would also kind of uh, make make the comments that Governor Cuomo made about his conversation with the Wilpons make all that much more sense of, you know, they, they can't afford to play without fans. Yeah, I mean, no one really can. It's not, I mean, that, not to be, I should be very clear. I am a diehard Mets fan. I'm a Brooklyn kid. My first baseball game was Game 6, 86 World Series. So I'm not picking on the Mets. Um, but what I am saying is that most teams can't afford it. Unfortunately, the Mets are, again, most more exposed than most just because of their current financial situation. Um, people we've spoken to that have seen the Mets' financial picture in recent months uh, have tell us that um, the, digit, the, the losses could go into the nine digits if they play half a season at Citi Field. Wow, that that is uh that's that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating to to hear those numbers, uh, certainly get thrown around. Do, do you happen to know what what the impact would be uh, across town on the Yankees? Are are they one of those teams that might be able to weather it a little bit more? Yeah, the Yankees are definitely able to weather a little bit a bit more. I mean, the Yankees are just it's just they've they've they just haven't had the issues the Mets have had, and uh, they've got it. And their their ownership group is just structured differently. The Yankees admirably have kept uh, revenue up for years, and and not so the, from my understanding, and again, I'm not, <laughs> not the world's best sports reporter, sports business reporter, is uh, that they're. Uh, I think their their licensing deals are incredibly lucrative. I think the Yankee brand. Is a is a pretty uh, is a pretty pricey commodity um, or asset in this case. Um, so yeah, the Yankees are I think are, are more they're on the other side of the scale of being for preparedness. I don't think the Steinbrenners are thrilled at the idea of losing a half a season of baseball, uh, but I, I think they're they're more adequately ready to do it. Looking at this this potential bid uh, for the New York Mets and and A Rod and J Lo, um, starting here, are you surprised in a way that that maybe their net worth isn't higher given the careers that they both have had and and continue to have? Because that you know the the number that's floated out there uh, seemed to surprise me a little bit. Where I, I thought maybe they could uh, they could more or less bid on a team on their own given what they've done. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think they're, they're, I mean, it's sports and entertainment. I mean, they're both people who've been, you know, they've, they've made this money through hard work. I don't want to, um, I don't want to be at all dismissive of what they've accomplished, but I mean, uh, you know, they were, Arad made it through his salary as a, as a baseball player, most, mostly in some endorsements. And, uh, J-Lo is an actress who, an entertainer who, you know, is paid for her services. So, um, you know, they've, th- those are careers for what they've made. That's actually really impressive when you're sort of at the, with the will of other people paying you for what you do. On the flip side, my, my natural world, uh, professionally, the hedge fund world, the guy like Steve Cohen, who was going to buy the team, uh, up until early February, uh, he's a guy who moves markets on his own. He's a guy who plays the, the financial world, 
uh, to his own tune. So the fact that he's worth eleven, probably more bi- billion dollars, uh, shows you sort of the, the way that the world works. I mean, he's he's not, no one has to pay Steve Cohen. He has clients and investors, but really, I mean, he, the guys who make that kind of money, it's sort of a whole different part of the economy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was at seven hundred fifty, eight hundred million dollars, something that like that. Yeah. And, J-Rod, yeah, that's impressive. I mean, for two people to come together and be worth almost a billion dollars is, in any uh, stratosphere is uh, is interesting. And I will say that I never thought I'd do this, but I had taken a dive I've taken into A-Rod's business life. Uh, he's made some very good decisions. He's a, he's, a, he's a pretty savvy investor, it seems like, and he gets good advice. Yeah, I mean, I've seen him on Shark Tank, but, you know, outside of that, I, I haven't dove in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I watched a clip of that, too. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that to, to, to sort of remember here is that they are going to sort of do what Jeter did in Miami, where they'll put up as much as they can, but people are going to come in with much bigger pockets and sort of help them make this happen so, and hopefully take, uh, you know, revenue once the deal's closed. The only question we have reporting this is, who those people are going to be because Major League Baseball has made it very clear behind closed doors they want someone with a lot of liquidity, a lot of cash flow to come in to own this team because they can't have this New York market team being run on a shoestring budget again. It's sort of it's been very bad for baseball, um, but the Wilpons are popular with ownership, so it's sort of been allowed to happen. But whoever buys them next, the, the ideal purchase will be someone who can spend a lot of money to make this organization really sing. Um, the names we're hearing, and the name now is Wayne Rothbaum, who is a biotech investor in New York. Not a lot's known about the guy, but our we can't see him being worth much more than two billion dollars. So that's not the kind of guy I think Major League Baseball is looking for. So it might be a quorum group that'll come in here and hopefully prove they have enough money to pay down the debts of this team. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a tough uh, it's going to be a tough pickup. I think people want the team sold, but I think there's a question of you know if we're going to be right back here in a few years, what's the point? Um, and that's sort of the issue right now is that Steve Cohen sort of was the ideal buyer for this. And from what we're reporting, and there's been a lot of rumors to the contrary, but I'm pretty confident telling you and anyone else that right now Steve Cohen's not preparing a bid. He's sitting there watching. Um, there was a lot of bad blood from when that thing fell apart, and it does not seem to have been improved in the, in, in the, in the interim. You mentioned Cohen and, and his, you know, $11 billion maybe plus net worth and, you know, him as, as an ideal buyer. Um, can you just take us through kind of what happened there and, and why why it may or may not have fallen apart? Because, um, you know, I, I think that we all saw the headlines, but but some people may not realize, you know, some of yeah, the details. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the real... A quick uh, summary history. Yeah, I mean, Cohen had a deal in place uh, for $2.6 billion for 80% of the team, which is the Wilpons' majority of their stake. Um, It didn't include SNY, so it would have been just like the money-losing baseball operation. Um, And Cohen was happy. By all means, it seemed like Cohen was thrilled. He's a lifelong Mets fan, loves baseball. Uh, this is something he was extremely excited about. And he's not, and I've covered him for years. He's not a guy who gets excited. Uh, but he was, <laughs> the word giddy was used to me, which I found I didn't even know how to make that look in my head. But he's, uh, yeah, he's, he was thrilled. And, um, really what happened at the end, it seems it came down to a dinner, uh, with all parties where they were trying to narrow out what they called sort of a, sort of a, it's like with the end of a deal, you try to hammer out sort of the final things. And the Wilpons have done this before. They've done this deals in the past where they say, listen, you can give us a lot of money as long as Jeff, the son, can keep can running the team for a while, uh, which I think Cohen saw as a negotiation tactic and not as an actual real request, considering the amount of money he was pointing up. But um, 
when they sat down and seen the Mets held fast and said, no, we want to run the team for five more years after you give us all the money to, to bail us out. And then after five years, we'll talk about you taking over. And he said, well, that's absurd uh, from our, our reporting shows. And the, and the Wolfram said, well, then there's no deal. And he said, fine. And I think everyone was shocked that he walked away, except for him. Um, but yeah, it's the, the Wilpons have done this before. They try to get cute. They try to keep control. They ha- There's a lot of talk about the Wilpons in New York for years. That do they have to sell the team? And it seems like they might financially have to, but emotionally they can't reckon with the reality of doing it. To, to be fair, putting down $2.6 million, I, I think you would you would expect to, to have some kind of control over that team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're going to pay, and I think the way it was structured was he was going to pay in over five years, but the first year was 80%. So he would have been the majority owner with no say. And again, you're talking about a hedge fund manager who is notoriously uh, is a control freak at his own fund, who's been very successful. So, I mean, it went against everything uh, in his personality. And I mean, I, yeah, people were kind of shocked uh, when we when we reported the story. We were shocked when we reported the story that it was true. But the more people we talked to, the more that turned out to be the <laughs> the case. Um, and yeah, that seems to be what happened. Uh, the other thing we're thinking now that you know this J Lo A Rod thing sort of came out of. I mean, we reported it. I think again in February, I, I reported that he was interested, um, but that it didn't seem like financially feasible. And that come out again makes us think maybe there's some leverage here. Maybe J Rod and uh, J Rod is pushing this narrative to keep to make the Wilpons stay stay in this deal because the Wilpons do have a history of getting flaky when deals get tight and they start to get close and they realize they have to sell the team. They sort of get weird and they get they start making crazy demands. Uh, and this might be a way of heading them off at the pass. They get getting New Yorkers excited about A Rod J Lo owning a baseball team uh, to sort of make sure the Wilpons don't renege this time. Last Mets one before, just one general question for you to wrap things up. But um, given the way the franchise has been devalued just because of the general economy and coronavirus, um, does it make sense or could you see the Wilpons hanging on to this team for a year or or whatever it might be to to try and drive that value back up and and, you know get the teams back on the field and, and see what happens with the economy as well? Well, as long as you air this uh, after <laughs> Friday, uh, I'll be happy to tell you that, yeah, we're, we're working on a story now saying that the, if the season is canceled and Major League Baseball can sort of help everyone out, there's, there's, a, there's a very clear way that Wilpons could hold on to this team and hope that valuations come back. Um, if, yeah, if Major League Baseball sort of cancels the season and says, listen, this isn't going to work, this is an unprecedented reality we're living in. We're going to have to figure out a way to make all the teams whole here. We'll do a rev share, or we'll allow people to like lend from us if they need. Yeah, there's a way the Wilpons could model could get out of this. I mean, it's, the, the Wilpons holding on to this team is like they found every different way, so it wouldn't shock anyone. It would be shocking, but I'm not shocking they did it again. Yeah, there's a way. If the season's canceled and there's and there's a way to keep everyone whole, uh, they could muddle through this, uh, people have told us, and, you know, hopefully wait for the valuations to snap back. Uh, but again, long term, as we said before, the idea that people are going to start packing baseball stadiums, even this, even by next April, seems like a pretty heavy lift uh, to think about. I mean, we're going to see reduced crowds. It's just, it's not... Baseball's not coming back uh, as quickly, I don't think, in live as everyone would hope or... Maybe it will, but it doesn't seem that way right now. So it's not a uh, growth industry, uh, and the valuations will take a long time to come back, and it's the question, can the Wilpons wait that long? 
That's interesting, and it, and it ties into this last question that, that I wanted to ask you. Baseball teams, sports franchises in general, um, we've seen the values just skyrocket in, in recent years. Um, compared to other industries that you you know cover and, and that you, you cover people in, are they still are they a good business move? Is is it a good play to to buy into a team, expect that the values are going to keep rising, or is this just kind of like a toy for hedge fund managers or, or people who have the money to to play with these kinds of things? I mean, right now it's really hard to think that people you know who are looking to make money on a team would buy one. I mean, it just there's so much uncertainty out there, and uncertainty really is sort of the enemy of business. I mean, it has been for years. The markets have always said, you know, the financial markets have always said uncertainty is their biggest enemy. And I can't really, I mean, I don't think anyone wants to even conceive of any time more uncertain uh, than this time. Um, we don't know when this thing is going to get cleared up, and there's t- testing and all this stuff. So when people are comfortable going back into crowds, uh, it's very much up in the air. So yeah, no, if you're running a baseball, if you're running a, any kind of sports franchise and ticket sales are part of your, um, your, your, your profit and loss considerations, then yeah, this would be a really bad time to buy a baseball team, um, or any kind of team. So it's, it's interesting this is happening now. Uh, and I think we can all expect, I think you, everyone should expect, a number of sports franchises to come on the block in the next two years. I think, you know, you'll see more come on than won't. Uh, there'll be a real gestational turnover, I think, in, uh, in ownership of, of sports franchises. And I think a lot of hedge fund guys and finance guys will be the ones coming to the top because they'll be the ones with the, no- the net worth to survive this type of just shock to the economy we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Thornton, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to what you leave you on that totally upbeat note. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, but hey, looking forward to what you have next with this whole crazy story. It's uh, it's certainly fun to follow. All right, so our thanks again to Thornton McEnry from the New York Post. Uh, As he mentioned, a new article that went up this morning with some more details, some really interesting stuff uh, about this potential purchase and and the hang up now is that Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez would very much like SNY to be in the deal because, as you heard Thornton say, uh, the baseball side of things for the New York Mets doesn't make money. They they lose quite a bit, and SNY really balances a lot of that out. So it, it remains to be seen what happens, um, but I thought that was a really interesting conversation that we had with Thornton uh, moments ago here on the show. As mentioned, I do want to get to some draft thoughts, and last night was the first round round of the NFL draft and it's unfair to to do draft grades the morning after to to be that reactionary to say uh you know oh the the Miami Dolphins absolutely won the draft because they didn't have to move up for Tua uh I don't know it, it's possible that they did it's possible that that it's a great pick that Tua fell in their lap it's also possible that Tua really is injury prone And aside from being injury prone, uh, maybe you do have a couple of concerns about his game. And he's not going to be quite the quarterback at the pro level that he was at the college level. So it's impossible really to say who won and lost. And in my mind, there are a couple of teams that quote-unquote won just because of the the situation that they found themselves in with their pick. And my first one would be the Arizona Cardinals at 8. Because I think Isaiah Simmons is just a freak. I mean, he's just a a monster of a person. And they ended up getting him at eight. 
he fell all the way to them. And I, and I can't understand why the Panthers didn't draft him. I saw some weird explanation last night that made absolutely no sense about the Panthers thinking that he was a better fit with a veteran defense, even though he was a better player. So they took defensive tackle Derek Brown out of Auburn. Um, I don't I don't get that rationale, that explanation. You think a guy's a better player, you take the better player, at least in my opinion. The next team that I think quote-unquote won is the the Dallas Cowboys because C.D. Lamb might have been the best receiver in this class, uh, was certainly one of the two best receivers in this class, and they got him at 17. They didn't have to move up to go get him, and now you pair him with Amari Cooper, with Zeke Elliott, and you've got a, a potent offense. You've got another great weapon to, to throw out there for Dak Prescott and, and for to, to make Dak comfortable and to look good. So I think that those two teams, quote-unquote, won by nature of players falling to them, by nature of players um, just kind of landing in their laps, maybe that you would not have expected. And I think that you could throw the Jets into that same category with Mekhi Becton, uh, you know, going to, to them at 11. He, he was maybe the best offensive tackle in the draft, depending on whose rankings you looked at, and he ended up with them uh, at 11. So that's as far as I'll go with winners and losers. The, the teams that that just kind of had guys fall to them that I really liked, and I can't understand why they fell quite as far as they did. The other thing that stood out to me, and there are two of them, and they're, they're somewhat connected, the lack of trades. The lack of trades stood out to me. For the first time since 2015, you had no trades in the top 15. You really didn't have all that much movement uh, later on in the draft at either. You know, you, you had uh, the Raiders make a move, while they were on the clock, you had the uh, the Jaguars making a move while they were on the clock. The Vikings move up. Um, there wasn't all that much that was being done. It, it was just kind of a, a couple of moves here, a couple of slots up, a couple of slots down. Um, you know, you're you're not looking at anything major. And the first thing that popped into my head as we saw this lack of movement, and I don't know if it's fair or not, if it's if it's the reason behind it or not, it's just the only thing that I could possibly think of. It had to have something to do with all the technology. It had to have something to do with the the way that the draft had to be held this year. That it just was more difficult to get trades done. And I I know, I know. In theory, it's still GM calls GM, GM and coach are talking about it, GM and coach are talking about it, but not having everybody from the same team in the same room, I think would delay those conversations just a little bit. And when you're talking about trading up for a top 10 pick or a top 5 pick, that delay might make all the difference in the world. And that lack of confidence to go ahead and make that move might give you all the more reason to just not make it. Because sometimes these trades get so out of hand and the compensation that you have to give up to get into the top 5 or to get into the top 10 is so burdensome, is so... 
um, heavy that it's it's just not worth it. That it's just not worth it to make that move. And if you're unsure, if you aren't able to to communicate quickly enough between your coach and your your personnel people and your draft people, it, it's just not worth it to give up those assets to get somebody that you might be able to ultimately get right where you're sitting. And maybe that's what the Dolphins saw. Maybe that's what the Chargers saw. And, and you know, maybe that's what the Jets saw as they saw this first round play itself out. Hey, we can still get Tua at five or Justin Herbert at six or Makai Becton at 11 or Jedrick Wills at 11. The way that the first round was shaping up for some of the teams that you thought might trade up, they didn't have to. And given the limitations, given the problems, given the obstacles that were put in place for this year's draft, it might benefit really all of them that they didn't have to go through with making that call. And that leads me to the second thing that stood out. One of the teams that did actually make a trade. One of the teams that did jump into the back up in the first round. And that's the Green Bay Packers. The Packers make a trade, they jump up to 26, and they take Jordan Love. They take a quarterback. And I'm not quite sure what to think about this. Because they've got one of the best quarterbacks in the league. What, Aaron Rodgers is maybe second best behind Patrick Mahomes? They've got one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And I know he's 36, but look, Tom Brady's playing until he's 43. Drew Brees is going to be 41, 42. Guys are playing longer than ever, later than ever, at a higher level than they ever have. And yet you go and you draft a quarterback. And Now, I know this quarterback isn't one that is ready to play right away. He's not somebody who you look at and say, yeah. He's our day one starter. He's somebody who needs a little bit more work. He's somebody who you've got to mold. You've got to kind of grow into a quarterback, but you love his raw skills, his raw talent, his raw ability. And so maybe you're looking to do the same thing with Jordan Love that you did with Aaron Rodgers so many years ago. That, man, I can't believe this guy is falling. I can't believe this guy is where we think he might get to. And if he gets to a certain point, we got to jump up and we got to make a move and we got to go get him, which is what they did with Aaron Rodgers. And then they sat him behind a future Hall of Famer for three years and let it play out. Now, I don't know how Aaron Rodgers feels about this, and I'm so curious. That's the story that I want coming out of the draft more than any other. How does Aaron Rodgers feel about what happened last night? How does Aaron Rodgers feel about the Packers finally taking a skill position offensive uh, offensive player for the first time since they took him in the first round. And it is quarterback. It's not a receiver to help him. It's not a running back to help him. It's not even a tight end to help him. It's a quarterback that's going to come in and eventually take his job. You don't draft a quarterback in the first round to never play for you. You don't draft a quarterback in the first round to never play play for you. Maybe in the second round. I mean, hey, Jimmy Garoppolo gets drafted high in the second round. Patriots don't end up playing him, and now there are other circumstances around that. And there are other guys. Ryan Finley, the the Bengals just drafted him, and he played, what, four games last year? There are guys recently that have been drafted in the second round, and they don't play down 
<laughs> they don't they don't sniff much of a, a chance for the starting job with that team that drafts them. But in the first round, you're not taking a guy who you don't plan on playing at some point. So this starts putting a clock on Aaron Rodgers. This starts putting a clock on his time with the Packers, at least in my opinion. Because why else are you giving up those assets? Why else are you trading up? Why else are you going and getting a quarterback to, I don't want to say compete with him, but to put on the depth chart behind him? Why else do you do it other than at some point during the five years that you control Jordan Love, you want him to be your quarterback? And then after that, he's a restricted free agent and you want to bring him back for more. Because when you look at where Aaron Rodgers is, yeah, he's 36 years old. Yes, he's the same age that Brett Favre was when Aaron Rodgers was drafted. But Brett Favre didn't go quietly. Brett Favre didn't go within a year or two. And even when he did go, he still wanted to play. So I'm curious as anyone to see how this thing plays itself out. And that was the most, single most intriguing thing to happen night one of the NFL draft, that the Packers traded up, that the Packers moved up in the first round and took a quarterback, did the same thing they did when they drafted Aaron Rodgers. Fascinating to watch how that plays itself out. So that will do it for us today here on A Show to Be Named Later. That'll wrap up the week for us on a show to be named later. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for tuning in. Whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com, wherever it is that you get your podcast, don't forget to subscribe so that you get each episode delivered straight to your phone or computer or listening device each and every day. Uh, We'll be back next week. We'll do our, our last dance review on our Monday podcast and uh, get you much more throughout the week. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good weekend and uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll be back here on a show to be named later very soon.